Hello and welcome to the program. This is Luke Hunt for The Diplomat and with me is Marissa Carruthers, a very well-known travel writer and journalist who has spent much of her career in Southeast Asia and as we all know uh, we're living in difficult times with the COVID-19 pandemic which has severely restricted travel across the region and the rest of the planet. Marissa, uh, times are tough. Hi Luke, yeah yeah, it's very very tough time for everyone especially in the tourism and travel industry. I mean as we know the majority of planes have kind of been grounded since mid-March. Kind of some talk that some countries will kind of lift restrictions and flights will start from the end of this month to the middle of July. But it doesn't look very hopeful, to be honest with you. I don't know how many people are immediately going to be wanting to jump on aeroplanes and kind of go on holiday. There's obviously still lots of kind of restrictions that are being talked about, like social distancing on aeroplanes, whether that can work. Will people feel safe on aeroplanes? How how are we going to manage airports and queues in airports? What's the price of flights going to be? And of course, you know, are people going to have expendable income? Right. One of the big issues is that countries are withdrawing into themselves, which is kind of very much against the globalisation trends of the last 20 years. And now we're seeing each country impose different restrictions. For example, we're in Cambodia at the moment, and to get into the country, you have to have a medical certificate 72 hours before landing. If anybody coughs on the plane, it could be two weeks in government accommodation, which is uh, not exactly five-star. And there seem to be different rules applied to different countries. I mean, I'm also wondering if this creates a lot more scope for travel riders because travel is, again, difficult to do. We haven't seen anything like this in decades. So how do you see the travel writers industry going? And it's going to take a lot of legwork just to find out what are all these countries doing and how can you link flights up to get somewhere or Mm. little alone where you want to go or be. Yeah, I mean, obviously at the moment, as a travel writer, I've been stuck in Cambodia since mid-January and Mm. I'm not really sure when myself or anyone else is going to be able to kind of leave the country and go and explore different destinations. There has been a lot of talk about kind of creating travel bubbles between certain countries, so that would mean that... You know, you wouldn't have to do a 14-day quarantine, which would make it much easier because, I mean, at the moment, who, you know, if I'm I'm travelling somewhere for five days to write a story, then I don't want to have to spend two weeks in quarantine Mm -hmm. in in that kind of destination. So I think that's kind of how travel will start. And there is a lot of scope for for travel writers as well, because people, even though, you know, as I said before, there'll be a lot less kind of expendable income. People, after being in lockdown for so long, are going to want to seek to kind of go out, go on holiday. So I think there's a lot of potential, especially for remote destinations. Obviously, in Southeast Asia, we have so many kind of islands where, mm-hmm. you know, I think no one's going to want to necessarily go to a big city with big crowds anymore. So I think there's a lot of right. opportunity for remote destinations, ecotourism, which has obviously been a big buzzword for a long time. I think that'll kind of excel quite a lot. Um, people looking to go to private islands or just kind of tropical islands. A lot of potential in Cambodia for things like Mandalkiri and Ratnakiri and right. those kind of destinations that haven't been explored so well up till now, but, you know, there's a huge potential for those kind of... Right. I, I also, I'm under the impression by what you're saying that short-term travel is out. Those kind of weekends away are impossible now, so if quarantine is required, it means you need to go away for a month perhaps too. Yeah, yeah. So I mean again there's a lot of countries now that 
they're opening up. The focus is on kind of domestic tourism, which obviously we're seeing a lot of in Cambodia, kind of staycations. Um, you can't get out of the country, so maybe a weekend down on the coast or in Siem Reap or right. all that kind of thing. So and of course, you were in Siem Reap recently at Angkor Wat. Yeah. Um, tell me about that. Uh, world's number one tourist destination with no tourists. <laughs> but I understand a lot of Khmer's, which is a different twist. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've been to Angkor Wat many times, and I've never been without having to kind of battle through crowds, big groups of tourists. So it was very... It was kind of a, a, a two, two edged, double edged sword. It was very, it was amazing to have the temples relatively to myself and to be able to kind of explore with no, none of these huge amounts of crowds. Also, obviously, it was kind of a stark indicator of how tourism is non existent in Cambodia. And obviously, it's one of Cambodia's kind of main economic pillars. So, you know, obviously, there's lots of people that are suffering. What was very nice, as you said, was seeing so many Cambodians there. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine a time when. Cambodians could go to Angkor Wat and pray in peace without, right. you know, hordes of people, or play badminton or picnic with their families. It was that was a really kind of special experience to see. But like I say, quite stark seeing the temples and Siem Reap completely shut down. That was very sad. I understand this sort of <clears throat> uh, the the numbers of foreigners going there is can be measured in the tens, which uh, compares with hundreds and hundreds of thousands. Yeah last year when I think, actually I think last year the numbers were about 2.4 million mm. and gate takings were about 160 odd million dollars which is, a, a, for a country like Cambodia, it's a big contributor to the economy. Sure, yeah. I mean, when I went a couple of weeks weekends ago, I went early afternoon and I asked the woman at the uh, ticket counter how many people had bought tickets and she said between 30 and 40 and I mean that was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So. Right. Normally, I would imagine this time last year, you know, it'd be in the thousands that they. Sure, I remember taking relatives up there over a year ago, and uh, it was uh, it, it was difficult for senior citizens to be standing in those queues. They were very long. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, Cambodia today just announced that another move, which you know, it's good that they're doing the testing on arrivals and that kind of thing, but now. They're saying that international arrivals have to pay, I think it's $5 to get from the airport to the testing centre, $100 for the test, $30 a day for three meals a day, and between $30 and $75 a day for quarantine. So that's, right. you know, that... It's another hit. It's a ma- another massive hit, because who wants to spend 14 days in quarantine, but then end up spending, you know, hundreds of dollars to do so? Very few people would dispute the tactics the authorities have taken around the world in terms of combating COVID-19. But when there are all these little add-ons, it does raise eyebrows in in regards to who is this money for, where is it going, and is this really necessary? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I appreciate, I don't know how much um, COVID-19 tests cost, but I, I, I don't think adding hundreds of dollars to um, a traveller's expenses and making them spend 14 days in quarantine is necessarily going to encourage people to to visit right. Cambodia. How, how will this kind of change or add to the dimensions of being a travel writer? I mean, before when we were travelling, you obtained a visa online. A lot of countries like Cambodia was on arrival. All that's disappeared. And then there are, each country has... Sorry, this goes back to a point I was trying to make before. All these countries have different rules and regulations mm. for getting in and getting out and mm. where you go next. So how does that add to your workload? 
Um, I mean, massively. For a start, you know, there's talk that when travel does resume, there's going to be queues in airports of kind of four hours when you have to go through all these additional kind of health mm. and security checks. I was told recently Hong Kong <laughs> has imposed uh, that kind of regime and it's supposed to be a four to five, but the people I know have gone through Hong Kong are saying it's close to eight or nine hours to get through to, oh, you know, wow. to get through customs. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you know, if I'm if I'm having to travel somewhere for two or three days, I don't want to have to spend eight hours in an airport. And then if I have to transit, does that mean I have to spend another eight hours in an airport? Kind of, so it's going to take me a day to get there. Mm-hmm. Then am I going to have to go into quarantine, then spend another eight hours coming back? Then am I going to have to go into quarantine when I come into Cambodia? Because right. obviously I'm not a national. So, I mean, again, kind of no one really knows at the moment, but obviously these are huge restrictions and they are things that I think kind of governments around the world are realising and hopefully trying to to work on so that, you know, people can travel much quicker and easier. Right. I hope they were listening. That was a clap of thunder in the background. <laughs> Cast your mind back to pre-COVID, say, December, early January this year. How, how was the state of the travel industry at that point before people realised what COVID could do? And how was it, uh, how did you find that as a uh, travel writer? Pre-COVID, I think travel was, you know, people love travel. People have a lot more money to spend on travel. Travel's a lot cheaper with budget flights and kind of a lot of competition, destinations competing with one another. So, you know, you could easily go away for a few days or longer and it would be kind of affordable. Uh, Lots of people wanted to do it. Lots of escapism from your reality. So I feel like it was kind of an industry that was constantly growing. Obviously, it's completely shattered now. I don't think really, and speaking to a lot of kind of industry experts, they're saying it's probably not going to start getting back on track until summer next and, year. And for countries like, say, Cambodia, Laos, uh, Myanmar, the, these are countries which basically require at least two flights to get there. You need to fly in via Bangkok, Singapore, Hong Kong, perhaps KL, and all of these countries have had chronic issues with COVID-19, unlike in Cambodia and Vietnam and Laos. Actually, Indochina has fared quite well. How do we negotiate transiting? I have not seen anything written or heard of in terms of how do I I negotiate going through Bangkok customs and Mm. transiting from one country to another? I'm not going through customs. Am I allowed into the airport? People don't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think, and that's, again, I think a lot of plans are being designed around that at the moment. I know a lot of airports, big transit airports, kind of cash in a lot on the transit traveller. You know, right. they'd issue, like, day visas. So, for example, if you had an eight-hour layover in Singapore, you could go into Singapore, kind of look around. I don't think that they'll be doing that for a very long time. Probably it will literally be you, you, you transit, you stay in the airport, you don't leave. There might mm-hmm. be a special kind of transit area or whatever. Right. Leaving um, COVID aside for a minute, what is your choice destination? What would it have been in December last year? And if you could get there now, how would you do it? So actually I had quite a few things planned for Mm. this year. I was actually going to travel Central Asia for three months, which obviously I... In the stand countries. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. 
Um, in Southeast Asia, I really, I've never been to Northern Laos before, so that was kind of on my list. Um, how would I get there now? Um, Laos might be vaguely possible if yeah. the borders reopen, the but borders uh, reopen. they're still talking about two-week quarantines if you cross yeah. a land border. Yeah, exactly. So I don't particularly fancy a 14-day quarantine. So I mean, personally for myself, and this breaks my heart because I love travelling, I'm probably not going to travel to a destination where I have to spend 14 days in quarantine. Right. So until that, you know, until these travel bubbles are kind of organised or these kind of restrictions are lifted, then mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't want I don't want to have to go and spend 14 days in a in a in another country's quarantine. Sure. You're talking more about ecotourism. Mm-hmm. What are some of the better off spots? I mean, Cambodia has been losing them uh, one after the other over the years, but the Cardamom does yeah. come to mind. Uh, Vietnam, Northern Laos, as you mentioned. Where, where do you see the growth potential if uh, the world can sort out its uh, COVID mess? I think there's a lot of potential in Myanmar, actually, and they're focusing a lot on ecotourism and kind of community-driven mm. tourism. Where, whereabouts in Myanmar? It's a big, it's a big um, country. Yeah, it's a big country. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on in Pa'an, which is kind of nearer the Thai border. Down south with all of the islands, there's, I think the Mergui Archipelago. And the Andaman Sea. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was closed off for many years until quite recently, so there's quite a lot of, still mm. very remote, there's a lot of kind of good projects going on there. Um, and again, that kind of fits into the, you can go to do the island hopping, you can go and stay on an island with no one else there, you can right. do your social distancing quite easily. Where else would I say? Like the Philippines, they've got a lot of tropical islands, and I think especially after the whole Boracay disaster, the government's kind of... And that was a mess. It was an absolute mess, yeah. Uh, I remember being there, <laughs> thought it'd be 20 years ago, now it's more actually, probably 25 years ago, and they were warning then of the... Uh, mess that was to come and of course we saw that in Thailand mm. and PP yeah. and uh, the beach yeah. Uh, yeah. W- which made headlines. Some of these beaches might be getting a bit of a respite at the moment well, from the yeah. tourism. It could be a good thing in a silver lining kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah I mean certainly I've read lots of things about you know COVID's obviously an absolute disaster but in terms of the environment there's been lots of um, destinations that have been able to recover quite well. Um, you know, I saw photos of dolphins in Rome in the in the um, in the rivers there. Um, you, you see kind of um, even just air pollution. Ten days in after lockdown in certain cities, you know, you can see sure. the sky uh, again. Man, you can see Mount Everest yeah. from uh, Kathmandu now. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like this has been it's given environments places that were kind of being dogged by over tourism a chance to breathe, a chance to recover. And maybe also a chance for the tourism industry to take a step back and look at what they were doing wrong, what they need to do when right. travel resumes. And in a sense, obviously, it's absolutely devastating, but there, there are opportunities to be made from this break where I think that we, everyone can take a step back, look at how we can be better travellers in the future and how, how to avoid mass tourism again, because no one really wants mass tourism anymore. Um, and how we can kind of develop this new chapter. Right. Um, what would you do differently, given that you posed the question? <laughs> um, I mean, I certainly am not a big fan of mass tourism, so I would look at destinations that maybe suffered from that, like, for example, some areas of uh, Phuket, I mm. think. I mean, I, I don't know what the solution is. I don't know if you should cap the amount of people, which is what they did in Boracay that come to the right. island. Um, maybe just kind of 
I mean, I guess you need to shake up your business model and look at ways that you can cater, still cater to kind of, I guess, budget tourists, but not encourage this kind of, has to be very cheap, so we have to just get the crowds to come would, in. Would crowd limits work? I that don't it, know. It, invo <laughs> it involves government control, and yeah. then when that happens, particularly in some of these countries, it's a nice opportunity to uh, skim money off top. Uh, all sorts of corruption can work its way into the system. Yeah. But, um, in regards to PP, there were a lot of complaints from the locals about tourism, tourist numbers, not enough tourists, governments complaining, beaches being closed down. But what a lot of people didn't really point out at the time, including journalists, was the people on PP who were complaining weren't actually from PP. They kind of inhabited the island after everybody was wiped out during the tsunami. Oh, wow. And it's kind of, there's all sorts of hidden politics when it comes to uh, money coming in and where does it go and in terms of uh, I don't know, restructuring, reforming the uh, tourism industry. It has enormous implications for countries like Thailand. Yeah, sure. And I mean, there's also the debate that if you start cupping numbers or charging people, then are you just going to, are you not allowing a whole kind of segment of society to go on right. holiday? I think people need to look at the value of certain tourists as well, you know, for example, there's a few countries, I think Thailand was one of them who banned the um, zero dollar tour mm -hmm. packages the from Chinese. China, yes. yeah. you know, there's no point having hundreds of thousands of people crowding somewhere, visiting a destination, potentially ruining it or having some kind of environmental impact and they're not actually putting any money into it. No, they certainly economy. stress out the environment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And if they're not helping or adding to the local economy, then it's not really of a benefit to a destination apart from it makes right. their arrival numbers look higher. So I think that's one area that can be looked at, kind of mm -hmm. getting rid of these tours that have no value to the local economy yeah. or the local environment. Is it possible that we could see the return of the backpacker? They have been absent for a long time, and I, I suspect social media and the way... Uh, the millennials, or certainly the next generation after the millennials, is a very different mindset. And with backpackers, uh, a lot of people complain, oh, they don't spend enough money, they're cheap, they're great unwashed kind of mentality. But the money they did spend was with locals. They, mm. they, they slept in homestays, they spent money on local restaurants, the, the small stuff on beaches and stalls, and they would stay for quite a while. Is it possible that they could make a return? Yeah, I mean, actually, I personally think that backpackers will probably be one of the first kind of segments to return because right. they tend to be a bit more adventurous. They tend to have less fear about things like catching yeah. COVID on an aeroplane. And lots of people do say that. They complain that they, they don't spend any money. But like you said, they actually spend quite a lot of money. They don't just come for a week or mm -hmm. a few days to Cambodia, you know, they'll, or wherever, they'll, they'll spend a lot more time. They do stay in guest houses, yes, they might be cheap guest houses, but they're still spending money. They still eat all their meals in local restaurants. In fact, they tend, like you said, they tend to spend more money in the local economy because that's kind of cheaper than, you know, staying in a three, four, five star hotel. Right. Yeah, so I think, I definitely think they'll come back. I think they're, especially in Southeast Asia, you know, they've got the whole yep. kind of circuit. So. They're definitely beneficial to this region, and I do think they'll come back. And they kind of suit that um, the demands of the time in that if it's if the environment with COVID is going to be more suited for people who want to spend, or it's going to limit it to people who are happy to spend a month, two months away, mm -hmm. and that 
backpackers, well, they could often take off for for a year or two, so they, they wouldn't be as concerned about quarantines as um, your ordinary tourist from Europe. Yeah, absolutely. Perhaps. And I mean, I'm also a member of a travel group on Facebook, and it's got millions of members. And I'd say every day people are posting saying, as soon as I can get on a plane, I'm getting on a plane, I'm getting on a plane. And right. they, these are kind of a lot of them are backpackers, and they've obviously had their travels cut or whatever, you know. They, so, yeah, I, I think that they will be a, a kind of strong segment. So how significant is that chunk of the market? I would imagine it's quite significant. Uh, the sort of middle-class tourists from the West who comes out for, you know, it's, it's cold in Europe, uh, the choices of the Caribbean or um, Southeast Asia, we've got two weeks, I guess they will largely disappear and they, they were an enormous chunk of the market. Yeah, I mean, in Cambodia, the tourists from the West had started to go down a little bit last year. But yeah, obviously they, you know, they will come um, in the in the winter months. They'll spend some time here. They will spend money here. They might visit a few countries here. And again, yeah, again, speaking to kind of industry experts, they're not really expected to start coming back until the end of 2021. Right, so it's kind of... We could see a mix of um, the high end with lots of play money mm-hmm. and the other end of the market of backpackers and uh, not much in between except for the locals who are happy to travel within their own countries. Yeah, and I think obviously because the kind of long haul market isn't expected to come back until the end of next year, lots of people are having to rethink their business model at the moment when people can't travel in and out of the country, they're trying to think how can we capture the domestic market, next it will be regional, so I think you know people will be looking at trying to get um, long weekend or short breaks from Thailand, from China, from Japan, from Vietnam, so kind of regionally first. but. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not going to stay for the two weeks that the kind of Western market would, and they're not going to spend the same amount of money, but I guess you have to start somewhere. So in a perfect world, if the uh, coronavirus was to be dealt with and everything was back to normal, uh, how do you think the industry will fare? Do you, has travelling... There's always been that distinction between being a traveller and a tourist, but um, is it a, a uh, an industry that's going to start with a blank canvas and kind of reinvent itself. One thing that sticks in my mind has always been traditionally tourism industry has been full of fly-by-nighters. I think that's improved a lot over the years, but how do you think it would fare if uh, we woke up tomorrow and there was no COVID virus? I think... Where would you start? Where would I I start? Well, I think if we were to wake up tomorrow and there was no coronavirus, I think very quickly everything would go back to... Back to normal. Back to normal, yeah. I don't think there's been, I know it's been six months, but I don't think there's been kind of that much of a time for it to have changed that dramatically. If we're talking about next year, yeah, sure, I think, you know. Having said that, I think, of course, we will emerge a very different tourism industry because who knows what hotels are going to be open, who knows which restaurants are still going to be open, you know. So there's obviously a lot of businesses that unfortunately won't reopen. Um, well, I've seen that in the streets here in Phnom Penh where uh, people have remarked to me that, you know, the lockdown's over, people can reopen. Why haven't they reopened? And my response was because they'll never reopen. Yeah. They've closed. Yeah. 
I mean, obviously, you, you live in Phnom Penh as well, and things are kind of getting relatively back to normal here. What was really surprising for me was when I went to Siem Reap, and literally on a Saturday night, there was three or four places open in Siem Reap. Right. The whole of Pub Street was closed. It was pitch black, and I have to wonder how many of those places, even if travel was to resume tomorrow, how many of those places have got the capacity to reopen. I don't think I... Right, I, I remember... I think we're only into the second or third week of the COVID virus here and uh, 200 businesses in CM Reap closed over one weekend, which also says to me that they don't have much of a business model. Yeah. That, I mean, if you can't survive... OK, six months is getting becoming a long period. A year is a long, long time. But if you can't survive a couple of months in any industry, you're not really in business. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, also on the other kind of side of the coin, I think CM Reap was also very oversaturated with um, restaurants, bars, coffee shops, hotels. And I know a lot of them were struggling even pre-coronavirus days. Mm -hmm. So it's no wonder um, that a lot of them kind of shut within the first two or three weeks. But I mean, yeah, you're right. Surely as a business, you should operate and be able to at least have enough money to survive yeah, you're right, six months, no, but three months at the very least. So right, think, you know. and then on, and on top of that, you also have the politics of some of these countries. I mean, Thailand's still suffering from the coup and has a military government. Uh, Cambodia is a one-party state. Uh, it's an authoritarian regime. Communist Vietnam and Laos remain unchanged, but particularly, say, with Cambodia, when the, after the elections in 2018, there was a massive drift away from this country because of politics. And I suspect that a lot of people are going to have to reevaluate this and ask themselves, do they want the tourists back or not? Because the COVID virus is going to force a reassessment of a lot of things, including the money coming in, the financial, economic implications, but also the political implications as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, as you say, after after the elections, there was a huge drop-off of tourists from the West. They don't really want to come to a country that's kind of maybe not so politically stable. It's, it's not a democracy. You know, there was lots of incidents that occurred before the elections that were obviously sure. reported in the West, and, you know, that doesn't mm -hmm. sit Newspapers very... were closed. NGOs were thrown out, politicians were banned yeah, 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 yeah. and jailed. Yeah, so all that kind of thing, I think, is definitely not positive for Cambodia. But I also feel that, I wouldn't say the tourism industry, but certainly the government for the last couple of years have been putting way too much emphasis on trying to get tourists from China. I think that by 20, obviously this has changed now with COVID, but I think they wanted to get 7.5 million annual tourists from China. Yep this year and like I said before okay you've got the figures but a vast majority of them aren't valuable tourists so right. this goes back to the zero-sum yeah tourism yeah, game yeah so I feel I mean I can't speak for the government of course but if they decide that they want to get back Western tourists then yes they have to they have to make some kind of adjustments to Right. the way they run the country, but I, <laughs> I don't Indeed, know Indeed, it, it can be a very tricky subject, uh, talking about governments in this part of the world. But on that note, uh, Marissa, thanks very much. Once COVID is over, it will be a brave new world. Yeah, yeah, and um, I hope that we can bring something positive out of this and um, learn some lessons from the mistakes we made before COVID. Okay. Marissa Carruthers, thanks very much. Thank you, Lou. Bye-bye.